Good to see you this morning. Good morning. Glad that you are here to worship the Lord with us. If you have a Bible with you, let's go to the book of Genesis once again. And for the last time, hopefully not in your life, but for the last time in our series in Genesis, we're going to be in chapter 50 today. If you are uh, new to the Bible, you don't have one, there are Bibles in the chair racks there in front of you. You can grab one of those, and uh, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, so if you go to the very first book of the Bible and make your way forward to Genesis chapter 50, that's where we're going to be spending our time today. We uh, started on January 16th of last year in the book of Genesis, and we have had, this is going to mark our 45th sermon, 45th and final sermon in this book. Uh, So it's been a long time. I hope it has been profitable to you, that it has been uh, time well spent for you in this uh, extremely foundational and important book of the Bible. Genesis 50, the last few verses of Genesis 50 is where we're going to be today. Each one of us who has gathered here this morning has a story. And when I say that each one of us has a story, I'm not necessarily referring to your biography. So each one of us has a story of where we're from, who our parents are. We have our life experiences that are unique to us, that have, that have shaped us and And every one of our stories is unique, but that's not the story that I'm talking about. When I talk about the story that you have, what I'm talking about is the internal narrative that you have that explains your life to you. Each one of us has this collection of threads that is our life, this collection of threads that is our experience, and and part of being human, I think, is trying to make sense of our experiences, right? We go through life and we wonder why certain things have happened. We wonder why there are certain people that were a part of our lives that have left. We, We wonder why it was us that happened to be in the right place at the right time to have this kind of opportunity when somebody else didn't. Each one of us has a narrative that tries to take all of those threads that make up our lives and then make sense of it. That's the story that I'm talking about right now. Your story weaves together your family history of what you know of it to create for you a a coherent a narrative that explains your present. And not only does that story try to account for your present, but it also gives forecasting for your future. There's some of us who have been so downtrodden as we've been worked our way through lives that, that we don't believe we are deserving of any good. And that's the kind of future that we see for ourselves. Now, sometimes the story that we've told ourselves gets things right. And so there are, there are aspects of the story that you 
tell yourself, to explain why it is the way it is, to make sense of the world around you and your experience, there are aspects of your story that are right. But there are also aspects of that narrative that you've created for yourself that are probably wildly inaccurate. Children that come from dysfunctional home situations often weave a narrative that makes things false. So we have pieces of that narrative that, 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 that are true, and we have pieces of that narrative that are false. But right or wrong, each one of us uses this story, uses this narrative to try to make the best sense that we can of our experiences and look forward to our future. I brought this up in the very first sermon that I preached on January 16th of last year, but Frederick Douglass, many of you who have at least studied Frederick Douglass at some point in your, in your schooling as you've been brought up, but Frederick Douglass was a, a slave who escaped in the year 1838. He became an author, an orator, a politician, a, a great leader and abolitionist, and he wrote a lot of things about his own life experiences and about the lens through which he viewed our country at that time. One of the things that Frederick Douglass wrote was this, genealogical trees do not flourish among slaves. Why would he say that? Why would Frederick Douglass say that genealogical trees do not flourish among slaves? Well, slavery has a way of erasing one's history. When you become the property of someone else, your sole function in life is to produce. And it does not matter who you are or where you have come from. It, It often strips people of their value and of their dignity. So many slaves lost touch with their roots, with their history. They lost touch with their story. Well, also in the very first sermon, I suggested that if Moses is the author of Genesis and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which I think Jesus seemed to assume, then he was addressing a people who had lost connection to their family tree during four centuries of slavery in Egypt. And so as people who had been recently freed from slavery, people who were trying to to re-understand their history and where they had come from, tried to, to find a new story for themselves, they found themselves in a position where they needed to be re-storied. Not restored, but re-story. They needed to have a fresh vision of who they were and how they fit into God's plan for history. So I believe the first five books of the Bible, in Genesis in particular, are in part Moses' way of doing them, giving them a fresh and true narrative of who they really were, where they had come from, and where they were going. 
The book of Genesis takes four centuries of slavery and reestablishes a family tree. It reestablishes a genealogy. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that one of the anchor phrases in the book of Genesis is this phrase, these are the generations. Okay, if you've been with us for this series, you know that this anchor phrase in the book of Genesis, these are the generations, gives us the ten major sections of the book. These are the generations sometimes introduces a straight genealogy. And so if you're doing your Bible reading, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're reading through the book of Genesis, and you get to a genealogy, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so and so and so you kind of start going, blah, 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 get, get, let's get to the story part again. <laughs> I know you do it. I've done it too. <laughs> okay, so, so sometimes these are the generations just gives us a straight genealogy. But there are other times in the book of Genesis where these are the generations basically means this is the story of. The first time we see this phrase, these are the generations, is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 where the Bible says, these are the generations, this is the story of the heavens and the earth. So God's people, Israel, have been brought out of slavery in Egypt where they have heard several other competing origins narratives. And one of the things that, that Moses is doing to these people is he is resituating them in the right story. The story of a good God who creates everything and puts them, even people who have suffered uh, mistreatment for four centuries, it's restoring to them the idea that they are valuable because they are made in God's image. They were made to reflect God and represent God just like me and just like you. These are the generations also tells stories of figures in the book of Genesis. People like Abraham beginning in chapter 11 and verse 27. And so we see this is the story of, of, of Terah who's Abraham's father. Or this is the story of Isaac or Noah and it goes on and on. But this morning we've reached the end of Genesis. And we've reached the end of this part of the story. All the major characters that we have met across these generations that are represented in this tree behind me on the screen, all of these major characters have been made from dust and because of sin have returned to the dust from which they came. There's only one major character left and we're going to say goodbye to him today. Where we left off was with Joseph and his brothers returning to Egypt after having this grand funeral for their father, to which many Egyptians attended. And when they returned, Joseph's brothers faced a fresh fear, beginning in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50. If you're there with me in Genesis 50, look at verse 15. 
The Word of God says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, you know I like to do this, and you should probably do this too. Uh, Get a little imaginative when you read the Bible, rather than just read it in the monotone inner voice that we often have with it, where it's like, put a little bit of spice into it, put a little bit of imagination to it. You You read this and you think, I wonder if they made that up. Like they get back from the funeral and they're like, send, they send an email to Joseph, hey, we just found this paper of dad's and he just was reminding you not to, just not to kill us. And he wanted us to, that, that was the last thing he said to us that he wanted us to tell you is please don't kill us for being terrible. Regardless of whether Jacob actually said that or not, you can tell there's, there's a sliver of doubt that's still in their hearts. Okay, we talked about forgiveness and guilt for uh, several weeks, a few weeks ago, and you can see them battling the guilt of what they've done and, and trying to receive a forgiveness that doesn't make sense. And there's, they're like us, where we wonder, even when we've been forgiven, if we're really forgiven. Is Joseph now, with his father out of the way, going to show his true colors? Listen to the way Joseph responds to them, beginning in verse 17, towards the end of verse 17. The Bible says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph's a crier. It's okay, guys. Joseph's a crier. He weeps on numerous occasions, the Bible tells us here. And you see him again, all the the emotions from everything that has, has taken place, the weeping of a father who's been lost, and even the the weeping that his brothers are still coming to him, uncertain of whether they are going to experience a retributive justice to, to what they've done. Verse 18 says that his brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
So here we have Joseph speaking one of the most well-known phrases in the entire book of Genesis and a phrase that we have turned over in our minds over the past few weeks over and over again. You meant it for evil, but God was working on another level. God meant it for good. You thought you were doing this, but all along God was doing this. And one of the questions I asked you as we considered this phrase, God meant it for good. For Joseph to say that, that little word it encompasses a bunch of terrible things. Going to prison, almost getting out of prison, and then staying in prison. Being sold into slavery by your own family. Being separated from your family for many years. Being plunged into a culture where you probably don't even speak the language. Getting employment in a a house where a false accusation is made and you're imprisoned without due process. I mean, there are so many difficult things summarized in the word it. And I asked you the very first message when we talked about that, what's your it? What would it encompass in your life that looks like evil but gives you the assurance that that God means it for good? And as I say that even again, you're probably ticking down through a list of of evil, whether that be actual wickedness done to you or just getting hit with the shrapnel of living in a broken world, everyone has an it. And we're often not able to, to keep perspective that even though all these difficult things are happening all around us, and even sometimes people, there are people who very, very legitimately have it in for us that God is over that, working it out for our good in ways that we cannot yet see and could never even imagine. And this is not something that is just brought up in the Old Testament. This is not just a little throwaway phrase at the end of the book of Genesis. The Apostle Paul takes up the very idea again in Romans 8 when he says that God works all things together for good. It doesn't say he works all the good things together for good. It says he works all things for good. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. It is far from easy. But how is Joseph able to weather storm after storm after storm? Joseph has a story. Joseph, remember, we we often look at the story of Joseph, we know how it ends. So it's easy for us to kind of walk through knowing that uh, just a couple years you're going to be second in command in Egypt and it's going to be awesome. Well, he doesn't know that. So he's got all of these, he's got all of these. Threads. He's got all of these pieces as he looks down at his life. 
he's trying to weave together a coherent narrative, a story that gives some kind of explanation for what's happening and what he might expect for the future. Now, if Joseph doesn't weave that story together carefully, he's in trouble, isn't he? Because Joseph could take those threads and weave them together to say, I must be the most unlucky person in the universe. Or Joseph could weave those threads together and say, you know what? I wasn't sure for a while, but now I'm convinced God hates me. Or I must be doing something wrong for God to keep allowing this to happen in my life. I bet you've said a bunch of those things. Joseph might be able to take all those threads together and weave them as he looks forward at a future when he's in an Egyptian prison and saying, based on all of my other experiences, the story that I can put together for myself is that the rest of my life is going to be terrible. There is nothing good for me out here, so I might as well pack it in and live for myself and get scratch and claw for what I can to get mine until I die. You could weave that story together, the story that he could tell himself, you could weave, weave that together in a variety of different ways, but the thing that saves Joseph is that he doesn't try to weave the story together himself. He actually locates his story inside of a bigger story. Now, he doesn't know how that story is going to end, but all throughout his life as all these difficult things are happening, he is locating his story inside of a bigger story that he is convinced is good. So that when he starts to get an inkling of what's happening, when he's elevated to power and now he's starting to feed people who are hungry and now he even has an opportunity to save his own family, now he's able to start to see the picture and now he's able to see because he's locating his story inside of a bigger God story, he's able to see, oh, I get it. You guys were all doing evil to me, but God had good in mind the whole time. And that's what we've got to do. If you just are looking at the few threads of your story and you're trying to weave them together to make sense, you are not going to come up with the correct narrative. You have got to have the Word of God and the grand story of what God is doing from creation to revelation. You've got to understand that your story fits in that one. In fact, it's the only thing that can make sense of your story. Joseph doesn't take revenge on his brothers because he actually believed what he said. God meant it for good and I don't need to stand in his place. This book ends with Joseph also returning to the dust from which he came Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, 
Joseph lived 110 years. He was getting those AARP things for a long time. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. That's his son. The, the children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. He said it twice now. God's going to visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And there's your end. Joseph lived out a seemingly rich life in Egypt. But he speaks a word to his brothers at the end. Tells them that they are going to be visited by the Lord as God had promised. God had, had assured Jacob when Jacob was in Canaan and considering a move to Egypt, God had assured him, I will take you, take you up and I will take you back again. So Joseph is repeating this promise to his brothers, and he is so certain that they are going to be visited by God as God had promised and that they're going to be taken back to the promised land that he makes his brothers and their children promise that they take his bones with them and and bury him in the promised land. The Bible says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So much of what God calls us to and so much of what we see in the Bible calls us to faith and what we can't see. I mentioned this last week, but those bones were going to gather dust for four centuries. But the Bible does tell us that When God's people made a run for it after God had visited Pharaoh and his family in the country with plague after plague after plague, Exodus chapter 13 and verse 19 tells us that they did did indeed take Joseph's bones with them. And I just like to imagine that scenario. Do you ever have to, do you ever leave the house twice? Uh, I don't care where we're going. Our neighbors know we're probably going to loop back around and get the stuff we forgot. And I just imagine Pharaoh saying, okay, get out of here. And they're just picking up their stuff and they're making a run for it. And they're, they've got the garage door down and they're like, Joseph's bones. We promised Joseph we would take the bones. Where did we put the bones? It's been four centuries. But they take the bones with them. And many more decades after even that, the people finally settle the land. And the second to the last verse 
of Joshua, records, which records uh, their taking of the land, tells us this in verse 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which they've been carrying around everywhere, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. <laughs> they did it. Joseph saw it. He didn't see it, but he saw it. He believed. As I've said, Joseph lived in a story that was bigger than his, which is what you've got to do to make it. When he was laid to rest, he was laid to rest in anticipation of a good future. And that's what I want us to focus on as we draw the curtain on Genesis this morning. Here's the truth. So we've considered this story, which is a piece of God's bigger story, the storyline of the Bible and the history of God's redemption and saving of his people. And if you're in Christ, if you know Jesus, this applies to you as well. It's, it's this truth. The end of this story is good. Do you believe that? And I don't know what your story is, and you may have experienced some really horrific things in life. But if I could use incorrect, incorrect grammar, this story ends good. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be well. Joseph says good, and I want to keep that word. This story ends good. The end of this story is good. See, the book of Genesis is so all-encompassing that it does not just provide a narrative for newly freed Hebrew slaves. It provides a narrative for all the stories. My story, your story, the people who have become before us, and the people who will come after us. This book of Genesis is not just their story. This book is your story. There's a sense in which all of us are living in Egypt. with an ache in our heart for Eden. My wife and I had the privilege, the beginning of last year, to uh, go to Europe. And Germany was one of the countries that we were, were in, and there was a city that we visited. We'd say Spire. They'd say Spire. And I'm never sure if you're supposed to try to say it the way you should say it or just not get too fancy and say it, the, say it the way you can say it. So I'll say Spire. But as we were in this city of Spire, we had found that there was a, 
a, a, a Jewish history museum in that city. And so we kind of separated ourselves from the rest of the group and kind of did our own thing, uh, which was difficult language-wise. Uh, but we finally found, after much looking around, we finally found this little museum that seeks to preserve the Jewish history in this city. And it turns out, like, in the year 1000, there was this strong, thriving Jewish settlement in this city that existed for about four centuries. And when they were doing some renovations on a building in the city, they were knocking something down. They discovered these, these, these ancient walls of this old synagogue. And not only did they discover the ruins of this old synagogue, but they, they saw this uh, mikvah, which is like a, a sort of a baptismal thing that's like two stories down into the ground. And so you can actually walk down into it and, and see this thing. It was really amazing. Uh, while we were looking through some of the, the pieces of the ruins, they had headstones from a cemetery that had been there. And uh, TripAdvisor had a better picture than the one I took. <laughs> so shout out to TripAdvisor. But you can see that on the screen behind me, these, these headstones. And uh, something from that was written on these headstones really captured my attention. I was reading them. They're in, they're in Hebrew, which I don't get around well in, so the, I got the translation of it. But they all expressed a similar sentiment. I'm going to read one of them to you as an example. One of these headstones said this, May this pile of stones and the pillar which I have placed at his head bear witness to the gentle and delightful boy, Moses. Son of Israel, the Levite, the little boy named Moses. It goes on to give the dates. And then it says, may his soul be part of the bundle of life in the Garden of Eden. Amen. Amen. Selah. That jumped out to me right away. May his soul be part of the bundle of life in the Garden of Eden. In that moment, as I was reading that, I felt strangely connected to everything that had ever been. Here is a boy that's lived and died a millennia before me in a community which aches for Eden, in a settlement that is eventually destroyed as anti-Semitism rises in the 1400s. There's a hope in all of humanity, whether we can name it, whether we can put our our finger on it, whether we're fully aware exactly of what is going on. But there's a, a hunger, I believe, in all of us to reconnect with God's original intent for us. To be back to Eden. To not live in a world of hurt, 
a world of brokenness, a world of heartache, of saying goodbye, of separation, of sickness, of evil, of death, of addiction. I mean, it goes on and on and on. We can try to be as optimistic as we can be about the world, but paradise has been lost. And we ache for Eden. Well, God has made a promise to us that echoes down from one generation to another. We've brought it up many times before, but we'll bring it up again as we close today. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. God's promise to Eve that she is going to have a descendant who will place his foot firmly on the head of the serpent who represents all evil and wickedness in this world. And the end of the Bible tells us that when this part of the story comes to an end, In the words of a man named Richard Barcellos, the end will be better than the beginning. It's not just that we are going to have Eden restored, but that the end is going to be even better than the beginning. There's language in the book of Revelation, the last book in your New Testament, that that connects with the first book of the Bible, and we don't have time to work through all this language again. But there is the imagery of Eden in the final vision of things in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Eden is framed by rivers. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God's presence was dwelling in Eden, it was the place where his, he, he de- his demonstrated presence was, was chosen to dwell, and now we see his ruling throne here in this city. So it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. We saw that in Eden with its 12 kinds of fruit. Never seen one of those before. Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So because of sin, humanity has been barred from the tree of life. Now humanity restored, receiving the benefits, the healing of the tree of life for all eternity. The Bible tells us that this place will be even better than the beginning because this is the place where the presence of God will eternally dwell. God will fully and finally make an end of sin so that we are, 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 uh, will, will be saved to sin no more, as we sometimes sing. And it will be a place where there will no longer be any pain. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, 
It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Or you could sing it. I know how this story ends. We will be with you again. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, let me share this promise from Jesus just a couple of verses later in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You want to know what another word for without payment is? Free. We are all broken by sin. And as I said earlier, some of that sin is our own doing. And some of, some of it is the shrapnel we take from the sin around us. Jesus says, if you are thirsty for living water, if you are thirsty for eternal life, you don't have to bring anything but yourself to me. And as he promised the woman at the well, the person who drinks from this living water will never thirst again. If you don't know Jesus, I really believe that you need Christ to make sense of your story. To see that the end of your story, no matter what has happened in your life, it can be and will be in Christ good. Many generations have come and gone since the beginning. Many. I don't know why a lot of things have happened in this world. I think a lot of us should be like Joseph and say, I, I don't understand why God allows all the things that he allows. I don't know why Joseph had to be torn from his family. I don't know why Frederick Douglass had to be a slave. I don't know why gentle and delightful little boys like Moses have to die. And I don't understand why we have to spend so much time in Egypt. But I believe Joseph was right. God means all of it for good. And the end of this story is unfailingly good. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we work our way through life 
that you would help us see our story in light of a bigger story. And we don't have all the chapters of this story, but we do know how it ends. And so I pray that you would help us to see that no matter what comes our way, you intend to work it all for our good. Lord, if there is someone here with us this morning does not, who does not know Christ, I pray that you would help them see that these are not just platitudes that Jesus gives us, that you sent your Son to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sin so that we could be forgiven and redeemed and rescued. And I pray that if there is someone here this morning who does not know Jesus, they would come to him this morning in faith and see their story in this grand, beautiful story of redemption. I pray it in Jesus' name.